Hello and welcome back to Days Gone By Season 2, a podcast that's part of the Scattered Abroad Network. My name is Jameson Stewart, and today's episode of Days Gone By is a sermon preached by Robert R. Taylor Jr. This sermon is when he spoke on the Memphis School of Preaching Lectureship in 2021. The title of that sermon was The Entire Bible Magnifies His Name. I'm going to leave in the introduction that Brother B.J. Clark gave him, and then it'll go right into Brother Taylor's sermon. I hope you enjoy this episode of Days Gone By with Brother Robert R. Taylor, Jr. There wouldn't be uh, any way that I could give an adequate introduction to our speaker, though I've tried many times to remind people of just how many sermons this brother has written, how many articles he has written, how many chapters for how many books, how many lectureship chapters he's contributed. Uh, He's been here over 50 times to speak at the Memphis School of Preaching Lectureship. And just think about 50 years worth of preparation and study. And the man is a Christian gentleman. He's not just knowledgeable in the scriptures, reading the New Testament through at least uh, once a month every month for decades and I guarantee you if this brother has read the New Testament once a month every month for decades and he says something about the Bible my ears perk up and listen because he's no stranger to the scriptures and he has always exalted Christ and magnified Christ and the church in his preaching and in his life he showed us the qualities of being a great husband and father as well as a superior gospel preacher who doesn't have a superior attitude in him. I'm so grateful that Brother Robert R. Taylor Jr. is once again present here to speak at the MSOP lectureship and to once again close us out. And no better, no better speaker could be chosen for the theme that's been selected for tonight's topic. The entire Bible magnifies his name. I don't know how many times I've listened to Brother Taylor Take us on a journey from Old Testament to New, from generations to revolutions, as the little boy said in Bible class. He, from Genesis to Revelation, Brother, Brother Taylor is quite capable of giving us a panoramic view of the Scripture, and I'm looking forward to hearing him tonight. The entire Bible magnifies his name. Thank you, Brother B.J., and what a joy it is to be here and to participate in another lectureship. This is one of the true delights uh, that I have every spring, and I always look forward to the coming of this week. The lectureships through the years have brought great, bountiful blessings to our congregations throughout the land. We preachers have been greatly blessed, and all of us as members have been greatly blessed. We've been built up in that faith most holy. We've learned more about the sacred scriptures, We've learned to love God more deeply, Jesus Christ more appropriately, and the Holy Spirit with the deepest of reverence. I appreciate the invitation to come today. It's been good to have my daughter Rebecca and Phil. That's added a double pleasure to the enjoyment of this week. Now for the topic tonight, the entire Bible. I didn't know exactly how to approach this topic, until I saw the title, Entire Bible. I think that indicates that I need to go through the entire Bible 
It will be a rather quick journey, but nevertheless, uh, that is what is entailed within this magnificent title, The Entire Bible Magnifies His Name. Really, we do not have to go past Genesis 1-1 until we find God's name being glorified, being praised, and being magnified. That wonderful passage of Scripture says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A couple of hundred years ago, there was an Englishman by the name of Herbert Spencer, and he came out with what the scientific world hailed as a great scientific discovery. Basically, he talked about time, force, action, and matter. And that was quickly accepted by the scientific world. They thought that Spencer had developed something, had discovered something that had escaped the attention of the entire human race all those years. But Bible believers were quick to point out more than 3,000 or about 3,000 years ago, Jehovah God had Moses put that in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning time, God would be the force, created would be the action, the heavens would be space, and the matter would be earth. And what a wonderful way to introduce the Bible to us. As we begin to look at the entire Bible, I want to divide our lesson into three basic parts tonight. First of all, I want to go through the Bible basically and briefly and talk about some people who did not magnify the name of God or the name of Christ or the name of the Holy Spirit. And then I want to turn the coin over to a brighter side, a better side, and talk about some people in the Bible, both the Old Testament and New Testament, who did magnify the Word of God. They enlarged it in their hearts. They loved it, and many of them have died as a seal of the testimony and the deepest of faith they had in the God of heaven. And then last of all, I want to suggest some ways that you and I can magnify the Word of God and the noble name of God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the book of Genesis, we stop briefly at Genesis, the third chapter. And here in this chapter, we have the first human pair. We also have uh, the committing of the first sin. Adam and Eve had been made in the image and glory and uh, the likeness of God Almighty back in Genesis, the second chapter. But it's in Genesis, the third chapter, that they close their hearts their eyes and their ears to God and His wisdom, His goodness, His gentleness, and they opened their eyes, opened their hearts, opened their ears to satanic advice. As a result, sin entered into the world. Adam and Eve did not magnify the name of God when they brought sin into the world, when they turned away from Jehovah the ruler and the sovereign of the universe and went to the arch enemy of mankind, a position that the devil has held all these many, many centuries. We pass on to another chapter in the book of Genesis, and we find a man by the name of Cain. 
He certainly did not bring honor. He certainly did not bring majestic uh, distinctions. He certainly did not bring, uh, <clears throat> bring magnification to the name of God. He's one of the sons of Adam and Eve, one of the firstborn, and he had an excellent beginning. He had an excellent uh, brother to help him, Abel, and yet he turned out for the bad. He wanted to do things in Cain's way and not pursue things God's way. And then we have the contemporaries of Noah. At this time, there have been ten generations from Adam down to Noah. And it is said of the people in Noah's time, especially those outside of his immediate family, that every man's heart was turned toward that which was evil. Every thought and every indication, every motive was built upon the premises of earthly pleasure and earthly enjoyment. And so this is another example of, of a person or of a people that did not magnify the name of God Almighty. We come on a cross uh, traveling through the book of Genesis, and the Bible talks about the pagan nations that were in the land of Palestine at the time that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three founding fathers of the Hebrew race, came into the land of promise. Of course, Abraham came in, and Isaac was born in that land, and Jacob was born in that land. They became the three founding fathers uh, of the Israelite nation. And Abraham is referred to quite often as the father of the faithful. But they lived amidst people who did not worship and serve the God of heaven. They lived among people who had made gods of their own, gods that pleased them, gods that would approve everything that they wanted to do. These were man-made idols, and they led many people into error. We come on into the time of Moses and Aaron. Moses 80, is 80 years of age at the time that he led the people out of Egyptian tyranny. His older brother Aaron is 83 at this time, and we find Pharaoh and the people of that time as being very opposite as being very stubborn and being obstinate. It took ten plagues in order for the wicked and the insolent Pharaoh and his cronies to decide Israel might be better off going from us and we'd be better off without the Israelite nation. They had kept those people in bondage for a long, long time. And now the people are allowed to go into the land of freedom, into the wilderness, where due to their own sins and infractions, they were destined to stay there for 40 years. And so many, many people that composed the peers and the contemporaries of Moses and Aaron were people who were earthly minded. They were people who desired the who who, who courted the favor of uh, uh, the po popular people of the world. And so that's the kind of crowd in which they grew up 
in which they established their own home. And then, of course, after they left the uh, wilderness land, coming to the eastern banks of the Jordan River, now under the leadership of Joshua, they cross uh, that river Jordan and come into the land of promise, that land that had been promised to Abraham, promised again to Isaac, promised again to Jacob, and it would become their land with God helping them to overcome, defeat, and surrender the pagan nations that lived there. And so many, many people opposed the people of God. We come on a little bit later on as we travel through the Old Testament, and we note some people who lived in the time of Moses, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, but they were not in the same group with Moses and Aaron. They were not in the same group of people who ought to have respected God, who ought to have loved him deeply, who ought to have served him loyally. They were more concerned with earthly matters than they were with heavenly matters. And as a result, these people did not bring magnificence or magnification to the name of God and, in fact, the name of all three. We make a mistake if we think that we only begin to study about Jesus in the New Testament. His picture is is portrayed numerous times in the Old Testament. And, in fact, in the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God comes from the Hebrew word Elohim, suggestive of a plurality that is acting in unison together. And so there we have the people who oppose the God of heaven. Coming on down a little bit later, we travel through the historical books, and we notice enemy after enemy, nation after nation that rose up against the Israelite people. It was God and his mighty power, his powerful miracles that kept Israel alive and allowing them to develop into the messianic, the messianic family from which the future Messiah, hundreds of years still in the future from their vantage point, that he would come from this family line. In the book of Psalms, we find enemies that are set forth. David wrote perhaps a little over half the Psalms, and quite often he talked about the enemies that he faced and the dangers in which they put Jesse's son. And other writers in the book of Psalms did the same thing. We come on now to the writings of the prophets. There were four of the major prophets, and there were 12 of the minor prophets. There are five books in the major prophetic section. Jeremiah wrote an extra book. So we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They lived among the people, and in fact, they were in captivity a portion of their lives. And then again, we come to the minor prophets, beginning with Hosea and down to Malachi. Think about all the enemies of the faith that we read about in the minor prophets. These gallant men, these courageous pilgrims, These adorable men and women retained their faith in Jehovah God 
against the greatest of odds. There were people who were determined that they were going to stamp out and stomp to pieces the religion of Jehovah God. This brings us into the New Testament era. Of course, there were about 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, the first chapter. And uh, during that period, we have the Maccabean people, and they brought a lot of honor to the Lord. But there were other people like Antiochus who did a tremendous amount of evil and infamy during the years that he reigned in this period of time. As we step into the pages of the New Testament, we're introduced quite early to the Herodian family. There are several that ruled in the name of Herod. They began with Herod the Great. He had ruled for a number of decades at the time that Jesus was born into the world. To show the enormous evil characterized by this man, he even put to death some of his favorite wives. He even put to death some of his own children whom he thought were trying to take the throne away from him. And so he was wicked to the very degree of, uh, of satanic infamy. In fact, uh, he wanted to kill all the babies in order to get Jesus Christ in the early part, or rather in the latter part of his reign. He sent out a decree that all the babies three years and two years and under were to be put to death. And I suppose he might have died thinking, I have killed Jesus the baby. But Jesus the baby was safe in the land of Egypt and would become the Savior and the Messiah of the world. There were others in the Herodian family who brought a great deal of trouble and heartache to the people of their time. For instance, there was Herod Antipas. He put to death John the Baptist, one of the most enormous crimes that's ever been committed in the, in the nature of time. Not only that, but he was a person that hated, and he and his wife Herodias hated John, hated righteousness, hated sobriety, and hated a righteous kind of lifestyle. And then we have Herod Agrippa I, we read about him in Acts, the 12th chapter. He was filled with such heartlessness that he took James, the apostle, and beheaded him. And he, I think he had all kinds of plans of doing the same to Peter. The Lord stepped in, saved Peter's life, because Jesus had already promised that Peter was going to live to be an old man. I think that may be the reason why Peter was sleeping that night. He knew that he had the promise that he was going to live until he became an old man. And he was not an old man at this time. But nevertheless, that's the kind of man Herod, Antipa Herod, uh, Herod, the, Herod Agrippa I was. And then we find the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were two groups of religious people, two sects of people, that had begun during the, during the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We do not read about Sadducees. We do not read about Pharisees in the Old Testament. It's only in the Inner Testament period that we begin to, 
uh, began to notice what these people were capable of doing. The Pharisees were married to tradition. They wanted to follow the traditions of the elders. When there was a conflict between a commandment that came from God and a tradition that came from their fathers on down to sons and, and grandsons, they had no hesitation in saying, it's out with God and it's in with our human tradition. And then we have the Sadducees. They were the materialist of their day. They were the modernist of the first century. They denied so many of the essentials of the Bible. They denied that man has a soul. They denied that there was a future life. They denied the reality of eternal punishment as well as eternal life, eternal happiness in heaven after a while. The Sadducees were instrumental in persecuting the early church. And then through the book of Acts and on into the, and in, into the epistles, we find numerous cases of false teachers who rose up in opposition to Christ, who rose up in opposition to the apostles, who rose up in opposition especially to the apostle Paul. And then we come to the book of Revelation, and we read about the letters to the seven churches in Asia. Two of them, no fault was found. And with some of them, there was both good and then condemnation. And then two, or rather one, did not receive any commendation at all. The lukewarm Laodiceans. Now, people in lukewarmness are not going to magnify the name of Christ. They're not going to lift high and holy the name of Jehovah God. That's a rather quick journey from the standpoint of people who did not want to magnify God. Now turning the coin over, we see something about the good people who wanted to do the right thing, who desired to bring great honor and great uh, and greatness to the character of the God that they serve. We have uh, a man by the name of Abel. He was born to Adam and Eve. And the Bible not only talks about him generously and in a complimentary way in the Old Testament, but he's also mentioned in the New Testament as one whose faith still lives. In fact, in Inspiration's Hall of Faith and Fame, Hebrews, the 11th chapter, he's mentioned in that chapter. And then John refers to him as the one who loved evil and hated righteousness. And so we have this uh, great man who wanted to serve the Lord. And then we have the man Enoch. He was seventh from Adam, as we learn in Genesis 5 and also in the book of Jude and the New Testament. He lived for 365 years. He's one of the two in history that never experienced physical death. The other was Elijah. At the end of 365 years, he was translated. A little girl had gone to a Bible class one Sunday morning, and uh, uh, her mother asked her when they got home, what did you study about in your class today? She said, we studied about Enoch. Well, tell me what you learned about Enoch. 
she said to her mother, well, Enoch had a good friend, and that good friend was God. And they loved each other, and they often walked each other. And one day they walked so far from Enoch's home and were never God's home, and so God suggested, Enoch, why don't you come and be with me? Well, we might not agree with everything the little girl said, but isn't that a warming story of a little child's faith and what she learned from the Bible? And then we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mentioned them briefly a few moments ago. Abraham, the father of the faithful. Isaac, a man of tremendously great peace. And Jacob, one of the most colorful men in all of the Bible. These three men loved God. They praised God. Abraham left the land of Erdi, uh, land of the Chaldeans, and came into the land of promise. And he and Isaac and Jacob were all promised that this land would ultimately become part of their futures of their future families. And so these men praised and honored God. And then we stopped briefly at Moses. What a powerful man he was. He spent 120 years upon the earth, 40 years in the courts of Pharaoh's daughter, the next 40 years in the wilderness, taking care of the sheep that belonged to his father-in-law, and the last 40 years, the eventful, the most influential of his years, were spent at the head of God's people as he brought them successfully through God's help across the Red Sea into the wilderness and led them, and they were stubborn people, if there ever was a stubborn group of people. But he was patient with them. He prayed for them when the Lord was about to take vengeance upon this sinful nation, and ultimately at the time of his death at 120 He's still faithfully serving the God of heaven. And then there is Joshua. And Joshua is one of the outstanding men in the Bible. Joshua uh, belonged to the Hebrew people. He was redeemed from the land of Egypt. He became the leader after Moses. And the Bible tells us in regard to Joshua something that he said near the end of his life. In Joshua the 12th, 15th chapter, uh, he, uh, 21st chapter, he suggested, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. He put the proposition before his nation, whether it be right on the sight of God to hearken unto you rather than to God, you can, well, that's a statement found in the New Testament, but the attitude fits Joshua as well. Joshua was determined to Pursue the course of faithfulness to the Lord. Notice when he said, uh, when he called upon the people to make a choice, notice that he did not say, neither I nor my family will serve the Lord. He did not say, I minus my family will serve the Lord. He did not say, neither one of us will serve the Lord. But he did say, my father and or my house and I will serve the Lord. We come on into the time of Elijah and Elisha. They were prophets in the northern kingdom. The division had already occurred at the end of Solomon's life. 
We have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And they did their great prophetic work in the northern kingdom. Elijah, very colorful, very fearless, a man that bucked the pagan forces of his day. He taught the people, especially on Mount Carmel, the one that they ought to serve, not Baal, but the God of heaven. And then Elisha, his successor, he lived a long life, a faithful life. He performed some of the great miracles of the Old Testament. We come on down, and there we have David, there we have Jonathan, and Jonathan is one of the true men of the Old Testament. He was a good man. He formed a friendship with, uh, uh, with David, and they remained friends the rest of the, the lives of the two. Jonathan, of course, died a long time before David did. But these two men were an honor to God's cause. Now there were dips in the faith and the life of David, but he always came back. He was deeply regretful when he stepped into the bounds of, of evil and immorality. And he was a person that loved the Lord and loved him deeply. In fact, he's remembered by Bible studies, Bible students as the one who loved the Lord as the one whose heart was after God, the man who loved the Lord. And then we have the, the great prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Lamentations and Ezekiel. They lived in critical times. They lived in hard times. But nevertheless, they served the Lord and served him with great distinction. And then we have the minor prophets. These prophets were honorable men, they formed a class. In fact, there are three main groups about which we read in the Old Testament, namely priests and prophets and kings. And these two, or rather the, the Hebrew, uh, not minor prophets, came into that second division. Whether we're talking about Hosea, whether we're talking about Joel, who predicted the coming of Pentecost, whether we're talking about Amos, uh, and the colorful way that he phrased and wrote his book, or whether we're talking about Malachi, who faced a group of people that had begun to rob God, and he stood squarely on the side of God. These are some of the people in the Old Testament who believed strongly in God Almighty. And then, stepping into the pages of the New Testament, we have Joseph and Mary. They are espoused or engaged at the time that we first meet them. But it was this couple chosen by God to bring his son into the world, not as a result of a physical union between the two of them, because Jesus was going to be made of a woman, made under the law, and one who would live perfectly the life of the Lord. He was virgin-conceived and virgin-born. Isaiah predicted that in Isaiah 7, 14. And Luke uh, confirms it, and Matthew does the same in talking about the early life and the birth of our Lord and Savior. And so these were people who loved the Lord and wanted to do right. There are a number of Marys that are mentioned in the New Testament, for instance, there's Mary, the Lord's mother. There's Mary, the 
the sister of Martha and Lazarus. There is Mary Magdalene. There is a Mary that is mentioned by Paul in one of his epistles. And uh, uh, other, there's a Mary that was the mother of John, the or rather John Mark. And so these have left a wonderful legacy on the beautiful name of Mary. My, one of my grandmothers was named Mary, and it's always been a cherished name in our family. But we come across and we begin to meet some disciples of the Lord. At about the age of 30, he received baptism at the hand of John the Baptist, and then he launched into his great ministry. But just a word or two about John the Baptist. He was the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth. He grew up in the wilderness. He became the fearless, uh, the fearless messianic uh, harbinger. He's the one that suggested, behold, the Lamb of God comes. I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose his shoes. And he died a death as a result of being a righteous man. That wicked Herod put him to death, as we see in the book of Matthew. And then again, we have people like the Apostle Peter and Andrew and John. John, that disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who wrote the five books of the New Testament, John 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, and even 50 chapters altogether. Oh, how he loved Jesus, and how Jesus loved him. In fact, we read about that beautiful expression, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Don't you, that, don't you know that must have cherished the heart of John the Baptist, especially in those closing days when he was in prison, when he was facing a certain beheading which Herod the king brought about. And so he's a man that lived close to the Lord and a man who brought great honor and great, uh, uh, greatness to the character of God. And then we have... Uh, uh, a man by the name of Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He's not on the Lord's side in Acts 7 because he, he presides at the stoning of Stephen. He certainly was not uh, magnifying God when he did that. And then in Acts the 8th chapter, he made havoc of the church. He was not magnifying God when he did that. Acts the 9th chapter, verses 1 and 2 he left the city of Jerusalem, headed for Syrian Damascus, breathing out threatenings and slaughter to the Lord. But a marvelous change, one of the greatest conversions of all time, occurred here in Acts the ninth chapter. Also, we have two other references to it, Acts, 16, Acts 9, and then Acts 22, and then Acts 26. But Paul became... I think the greatest man the world has ever known with the exception of Jesus Christ. In fact, he said this, and this was not a statement out of arrogance or pride, that he, he worked harder than any of the other apostles. Remember, everything that he wrote, he wrote with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit had him write this appraisal of his work. And then I think about some of the young people in... Uh, the Bible. I think about uh, Timothy. 
I think about Titus. We're not sure how young Titus was at the time that he became associated with Paul, but Timothy was still a young man, and he journeyed with Paul. Paul had the utmost of confidence in him and just loved Timothy as he loved probably no other person, none of his other associates. And then we have Titus, another outstanding person in the New Testament. We have a man by the name of Gaius that is mentioned in 3 John. And he was a wonderful man, a generous host, one who took care of gospel preachers when they came his way, one who believed and served the Lord in faithful fashion. And there's so many others about whom we read. I haven't said anything about Hannah, Samuel's mother. She was a great woman. I haven't said anything about some of the other great women about the Bible. But great women were found throughout the scriptures. Now the third and final part of the lesson, how can you and I magnificently and in and and an honorable way do bring this honor to the Lord and to his Son and to the Holy Spirit. First of all, we need to read the Bible. It ought to be a daily guide to us. We ought never to close our eyes and sleep unless we have studied a little something from the Bible that day. And it's amazing what you can learn from just being a regular student of the Bible. The Bible pronounces a beatitude in Revelation 1-3. Blessed are they that read and hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. The apostle, or rather Jesus said in John 5-39, Search the scriptures, for in them you think ye have eternal life. And then a magnificent statement that Paul made to Timothy in his final book, 2 Timothy 2-15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so we can read the Bible that shows that we are honoring him. We can reflect on what we are reading. We can accept what we're reading from the Bible because every word from Genesis 1-1 through the final statements found in Revelation 22-21 and 22, all of these uh, uh, have come from the God of heaven, inspired. We are walking with God when we are studying his word, when we're praying to him daily, when we worship him faithfully, worship at home, and certainly worship with our congregations. And what a wonderful period of worship we've had throughout this entire week. Great singing and remarkable lessons that we have heard. And, of course, the finest of fellowship. People uh, shaking hands with each other and hugging each other and so glad to spend a few moments together with people that we don't ordinarily see until it's lecture time again. We can certainly bring great honor to the Lord if we believe wholeheartedly in his word. We bring honor to the timeless trinity when we 
not only believe the word, but when we love that word, when we are even willing to die for that word. And there have been multiplied millions who have died for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think about Polycarp. He lived a, a little while after the, first, after the first century ended. He was an associate of the Apostle Paul, we're led to say. And Polycarp, when facing death, said to the people who promised him liberty if he, did, if he would curse the Lord Jesus Christ and turn his back on, on Jesus. He said, 80 and 6 years have I served him. He's never done many wrong. How then can I turn against him now? And they killed him as one of the millions of martyrs who have suffered and suffered greatly for the cause that we all love, that we all depend upon to get us to the right hand of Jesus in coming judgment. These are some of the ways that we can, uh, that we can show our great honor and our great love and our great affection for the timeless trinity. By the way, I like that expression. Timeless, that suggests eternal. Trinity, that is suggestive of three. There are three in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but they constitute one in plan, one in purpose, one in intent, one in motivation, and we never never read any time in the Old Testament or the New Testament when there were conflicts among these three. They were perfect in every sense of the term, and they gave us a perfect Bible, and they gave us uh, the necessary encouragement that we too might walk the way of righteousness, the way of godliness, and the way of sobriety. If you're here tonight and have never obeyed the gospel, the gospel is so beautiful. The gospel is so powerful. In fact, Paul referred to it in Romans 1.16 as the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this powerful gospel can save us when we read and study and learn it and when, when we believe in it, and when we are willing to repent of our sins, and when we are willing to confess the sweetest name on mortal tongue, as one of our lovely lyrics in a song suggests so richly, and then we are to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sin. Baptism is such a wonderful experience. I remember that August night, August the 10th, 1944, when I responded in a gospel meeting and was buried by the preacher in the waters of baptism, I still remember some of the joy that I felt when I realized all my sins had been done away. And then, of course, as a new child of God, I could pray for forgiveness when I came short of God's glory. Baptism is commanded, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, he that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, 16. Repent and be baptized, Peter said in Acts 2, 38. And now what tarriest thou, arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And Anas, the Saul of Tarsus, 
And we're told in Colossians 2, Romans the 6th chapter, that baptism is a burial. It's not, it's an immersion. It's not sprinkling, it's not pouring. For many years, I've, I taught when I was still uh, working with congregations, I taught a little children's class, I guess, for close to 50 years on Sunday evening. And every once in a while, I would take them through the gospel plan of salvation. They were too young to obey it at the time, but I wanted to plant the seeds. I wanted to sow the seeds that would materialize in their conversion years ahead. But we were studying the gospel plan of salvation, studying baptism. And I asked the boys and girls in that class, now why will sprinkling and why will pouring water upon a person not work for baptism? One little boy, a little airy boy, who was about four or five at the time, he said, Brother Taylor, I know. I said, tell us. He said, the power of God is not there. No preacher could have answered it better. No elder or Bible teacher could have answered it more forcefully than this four or five-year-old who'd been taught from babyhood on up to accept the teaching of the Bible. And then God has a wonderful plan of salvation, a second law of pardon. When, like Simon the sorcerer or others, when we uh, leave the pathway of right and go into the pathway of the wrong, we can repent of that, we can pray for the forgiveness of it, and we can confess it. And upon the completion of these three, our sins will be wiped away, completely erased, from the mind of God. If you're subject to the call of the gospel, we invite you to come while we stand and sing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.